And welcome to the board game Dojo, the podcast from Tokyo, Japan, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. I'm Eric, and thank you so much for tuning in today. It means the world to us as new podcasters. I always use plural because I'm not the only one who works on the research and opinions on this podcast or on our YouTube. I'm just the only one you hear. Sorry about that. Today, we have a really good episode. I'm proud of the work we do, and we put in tons of time behind the scenes reading papers and gathering info, but today's topic especially really hits close to home for me, as it encapsulates something that I've struggled with in my life, social anxiety, and how board games can be an outlet and help for people with it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and please subscribe or rate us on whatever podcast app you're listening on, as it really helps people find the show, and we are hoping that this episode specifically gets some traction with those in the board game hobby. And with that out of the way, it's time to get out your notebooks, because class is now in session. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Wake up, Link. Hey, you. You're finally awake. You were trying to cross the border, right? You walked right into that Imperial ambush. Same as us. And that thief over there. Damn you, Stormcloaks. Skyrim was fine until you came along. I'm willing to bet that since this is a psychology of games class, at least some of you instantly recognized at least one of these two clips, whether you're here watching it or on the podcast listening to it. Skyrim and The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. They are two of the best-selling games and transported people to new lands to get lost in, immersed in, and become a hero in. Both of these games use a narrative style called The Hero's Journey. You'll see this style everywhere, in games, stories, mythologies, and it goes something like this. It has three parts. The separation, where the hero sets out on their journey, seeking adventure. Secondly, the initiation, where the majority of the journey happens. The hero arrives. Finally is the return. The hero has finished whatever they set out to do and has obtained the object or transformed in some way. This storytelling method works so well because it gets people into the game. In both of these examples, we are thrown into a world where we don't know where we are or when we are. Slowly but surely, we grow accustomed to our characters, explore the world, and come out the other side in some kind of personal development. So why are we talking about this? Well, because today we are going to use this Hero's Journey Foundation as the backbone of our discussion of social anxiety. By talking about ourselves as the hero of our own stories, we can hopefully gain new viewpoints. And whether you're the person who has anxiety or just knows someone who does, this lesson will hopefully help you on your road to development and transformation. So let us begin with the first act. Sometimes called the departure, sometimes the separation, it is the part of the game where we get to know the character. We get to learn why they are on their journey, and because it's a game, we get to experience it firsthand. We are playing it. So let's take this opportunity to learn what social anxiety is and what it isn't. I think it's quite common for both people who have mental illnesses and for others to think about them that their brains are broken in some way. There isn't enough dopamine or maybe my brain doesn't respond to serotonin. And so many of those with social anxiety have the same idea. Why is my brain broken? Why can I not act quote unquote normal? Right away, let's just smack that away. 
Because generally speaking, people with social anxiety have a brain that is working exactly the way it is supposed to. Let me repeat that. It is working exactly the way it is supposed to. Our brains have been wired to keep us alive, right? Different parts of our brain work together to make sure of it. The amygdala acts as a fear center, activating our fight or flight response. And right next to it is our hippocampus, which learns from these experiences. We've talked many times before that our brains learn more from negative experiences, and this comes from our need to survive. We need to remember that we got sick eating that berry or that being around a certain person makes us uncomfortable. So what social anxiety is, is actually a learned response to danger, to discomfort. Like a broken record, it brings us back to nature versus nurture, but social anxiety although anxiety can have some genetic components, seems to lie quite heavily in the field of nurture. The brain learned that certain social settings were dangerous. Take, for example, if you were bullied. Take, for example, me. I was bullied a lot growing up, and it always seemed to be preceded by others pointing out that I was doing something wrong or doing something stupidly or me having to ask for help. My brain started equivocating asking for help with negative consequences. It started associating groups of people watching me with negative consequences. It learned. To this day, I cannot ask for help without a buildup of anxiety. I cannot watch comedy shows that have slapstick humor because I don't see it as funny. I see it as dangerous. You're doing something stupid. What's so weird about this is that when I'm not in that situation, when I'm just laying in bed at home, I beat myself up because... Why could I not just ask for help? Why did I get so nervous when people were watching me, even though they were watching me because I was teaching them how to do it, meaning I knew exactly what I was doing? But again, that's just my brain working perfectly. That logical side of my brain, when I'm not in perceived danger, is allowed to think clearly. I can assess the situation logically. Of course, if I ask others for help, they are not going to think I'm an idiot 100% of the time. Of course, people were watching me because they paid to, not because I was doing something stupid and they were waiting for someone to make fun of me. Of course. But in that moment, when my brain is perceiving danger, it doesn't act logically. It shuts that part down and it reacts instinctively. It's the reason that if we saw a mammoth running at us thousands of years ago, we didn't think, well, maybe this is a nice one who is just coming to say hi. Not all mammoths are dangerous, you know? No, we ran! And then later we could assess what happened and think, oh, wait, I think there was an avalanche. So it wasn't running at me. Rather, it was running away from the danger. But at that first moment, it didn't matter. We just knew to survive. So that's what people's brains with social anxiety are doing. They learned to not think, just escape in social situations because of past experiences. And usually, not just one, but many negative experiences. And people with social anxiety understand that they have it. It's not something where they don't even realize it's happening. Often we get mad at ourselves that we do it in the first place. But like true heroes, people with social anxiety don't want others to suffer in the same way. And they, like video game heroes, are equipped with a kind of superpower. Many studies have shown that I can make basic facial expressions and people from all over the world can understand what I'm feeling. If I'm smiling, I'm happy. When I'm scowling, I'm mad. When I'm frowning, I'm sad. You get the point. Well, there's something interesting about the brains of people with social anxiety. Let's say that I'm looking at you and I'm laughing happily, but I'm also scowling. I'm not sure how that would work other than if I'm the joker, but let's just pretend. 
your brain is probably going to be somewhat confused by this, right? Like, is he mad? Is he happy? What is going on? You're in a state of dissonance. But if I'm 75% laughing, non-anxious people will just interpret that as he's happy. Done. But people with social anxiety, their brains will be confused in a state of dissonance because I'm not 100% happy. Their brains clue them in on the 25% unhappy I am, and they worry about it. As we talked about, their brains learn from negative past experiences, and part of those experiences often come hand in hand with dealing with someone who is sad or angry or any number of negative emotions. So they are extremely good at, even to the point that it's a superpower, they're good at detecting negative emotions. Like x-ray vision, they see through you, through the facade, and see that you're not 100% happy. But even Superman has his kryptonite, and our heroes have some as well. This fine-tuning of the ability to see others' hidden emotions can, at times, lead to two things that are very common in those with social anxiety, catastrophizing and devaluing oneself. The first is catastrophizing, and this is really important because if you know someone with anxiety that you haven't seen for a while, they might be doing this. Catastrophizing is something called a cognitive distortion, which is just fancy psych stuff, meaning it's a way in which we perceive reality inaccurately. It can be irrational, it can be exaggerated, but either can lead to elements of depression and anxiety. Catastrophizing is pretty much what it sounds like. It is an exaggeration of an outcome that is more disastrous than it was. Or if a certain outcome will happen, then that will surely lead to disaster. Maybe you've had this happen to you without realizing it at work or at school. Something like, if I don't pass this test, I'll fail the class. Or if I don't nail this interview, I won't get the job. Something like that. And these can be rational. If you have an F in the class and you fail the final, you're probably failing the class. But what catastrophizing does is expand this out to more disastrous results. It can be like, if I fail this test, I will fail this class, which means that I'll never become a doctor, and then I'll disappoint my parents so they might disown me, and I'll lose all of my doctor friends as they go forward, and so on and so forth. What can be grounded in rationality is suddenly made irrational by anxiety. Let me give you an example that is more grounded in social anxiety, and it's about me. I joke a lot when I meet new people, and I'm very sensitive to laughter. Part of my anxiety is perceiving a chuckle or that polite laugh, you know what I mean, as I'm being annoying. If I didn't make you 100% laugh, then I think I failed. And this can cause me to get into a cycle where I think lots of people don't like me or find me annoying. I have a board game group who meets every month to play five to six hour games, and I used to go more often, but right now I'm stuck in this cycle. I didn't show up one time. Actually, I never even responded to the invite, and then a week went by, and then two, and then a month, and I never messaged the group. I continually ignored messages, like I wasn't even part of the group in the first place. And in my brain, I'm asking all the time, can I ever go back? And all this was because I was embarrassed because I made jokes, and then when I was in the bathroom, I overheard one of the new members of the group say that he and I seemed to have very different senses of humor. That's catastrophizing, and it can be triggered by a lot of things for those with social anxiety. The other kryptonite is devaluation. It's lowering oneself, and this can appear in a few ways. Often, those with social anxiety will put the blame on themselves and never blame the person who did the wrong thing. It's being the victim but convincing yourself you deserved it. Or when you have a complaint, lowering yourself that you're even complaining. Let me give you a great example that was in Healthy Gamer's interview with Twitch streamer Poopernoodle. She talked about when she was younger that she had a group of friends that would always give each other bracelets on their birthdays, which became quite expensive. But no mind, it was a friendship bracelet. 
But then on her birthday, after she had already pitched in for everyone else, they didn't get her one, and instead got her something much cheaper and non-sentimental. Now, I think we can agree that this was a pretty mean thing for them to do, but when she told Dr. K about it, she called herself materialistic for even complaining about it. She devalued her complaint by saying, oh, well, I'm just being materialistic. And in reality, she had a very real reason to be upset. These two things often go with each other. If you devalue yourself, or rather, think you are less worthy of love, affection, or friends, you'll get into that cycle of not feeling worthy to hang out with your friends, and then you get into a cycle that we talked about earlier. Besides, who would want to hang out with someone unvaluable? But they aren't. Nobody is unvaluable. A hero may feel isolated thinking nobody else can understand them, but look at the most popular movies of the past decade. Many of them are about the Avengers, a group of superheroes. In fact, social anxiety may be the second most prevalent mental illness in the world. The end of Act 1 is all about embarking on an adventure. An adventure of peril, hardship, difficulty, but also rewards, improvement, and memories. So as we near the end of the first section, we have learned about our heroes for today and the world they live in. They hold superpowers, but it's also a curse. Growing up, something happened, like a super serum of sensitivity, that made them who they are. So they go out into the world with memories, a predisposition to notice change in people's emotions and a lesser valuation of themselves. They haven't learned that they are a hero yet, so it's time to go on an adventure to find themselves. Act 2, called The Initiation, is when we get to the heart of the game itself. It's the point where the challenges get harder, the enemies might kill you 10, 20, 30 times before you get past them, and hopelessness, fear, and yes, anxiety can creep in. For something like an RPG, this is where you spend most of the game, the journey itself. And this is where we will spend quite a bit of our class today, in the journey itself. We've gotten to know what social anxiety is and how it came about. We know the origin stories of our heroes. So now it's time to get the development part of our journey. It's time to bring in games. Now, doing a quick Google search for something like social anxiety and gaming will actually bring up results from different ends of the spectrum. Some studies seem to support that gaming can help you. Some say that, no, no, gaming while being socially anxious actually leads you to an increasing rate of gaming disorder and can make the anxiety much, much worse. At first glance, this seems to be an irreconcilable difference between gaming good and gaming bad. But actually, upon further examination, this disparity actually isn't a paradox at all. Let me ask you this. What is the opposite of playing? Who says working? Work and play are opposites. Okay, quite a few of you. How about sleeping? No, I didn't get anyone liking that one. Okay, uh, here's an idea. How about depression? Think about it. If when we play something, we are more energized, we have more confidence, have increased focus, and have more positive feelings. So doesn't it make sense that the opposite of that would be feelings of fatigue, no confidence, no focus, and negative feelings? As much as I wish I could say that's my own thought, I cannot. It's the idea of Brian Sutton Smith, a specialist in play theory. And this was back before we had video games and what we are now calling the golden age of board gaming. It was before we had these fMRIs to test neurological brain stimulations. And yet these fMRIs seem to support his idea. 
What studies have shown is that when we play games, there are certain parts of our brain that are most stimulated, notably the reward pathways in the hippocampus. And thinking back to Neuroscience 101, the reward pathways is the part of the brain focused on goals and our motivation to achieve those goals. The hippocampus, we've already talked about. It's all about memory and learning from those memories. By stimulating these areas, they become engaged and get better at problem solving. It can be dying a billion times in Celeste or Elden Ring, or it can be figuring out how to save the world in Pandemic. We are stimulated. We try different strategies, work together with people. We thrive by overcoming challenges and seeing ourselves improve. What we see in people who are playing games are certain traits that they get better at by playing games like MMORPGs or cooperative board games. And I'm going to use Jay McGonagall's terms here. The first is urgent optimism or extreme self-motivation. It's the desire to act immediately to attack an obstacle combined with the fact that there is a reasonable chance at success. Basically, it's the mindset that it's always worth trying something. The second is social fabric. We like people more when we play a game with someone. We trust them to spend time with us, play with the same rules, and cooperate. Third is blissful productivity, and this both sounds good and a bit dystopic. Dystopic? Dystopic? Dystopic. I'm going with dystopic. We are happier when we are working harder and optimized as human beings. We get in a flow. Finally, there is epic meaning. We do an awe-inspiring missions, and we play through human planetary scale stories. The point to all of this, she says, is that it makes super-empowered, hopeful individuals. That is to say, games can push us to better ourselves so that we may become a better, more empowered version of ourselves. It's feeling anxiety, but pushing forward anyway. But this doesn't just happen. You can't pick up the piano in a date. You can't just suddenly know how to make the perfect cookies. It takes practice. One of the things that games allow us to do is to track our progress, remember our mistakes, and learn from them. In a game like Celeste, or a board game like Eon's End, you may lose to a level or a boss and then need to come back and fight another day. The boss doesn't remember you, but you remember it. You remember its attacks, its tricks, and the movements needed to get around it and beat it. The level itself, the boss itself, it didn't change, but you did. You got better. It's a feeling of progress, the feeling that you didn't give up. We persevere. In daily life, we can't really do this. Failure can often come with a price, whether it be lower grades, not meeting a deadline, or disappointing our friends. In games, we can fail with fewer consequences. We get to see what happens by making mistakes and through perseverance and persistence, eventually experience the epic win. But what if we could apply that hopefulness, that mindset of how we feel in games to the real world? What if we can transition those thoughts of progress and seeing mistakes as a learning experience outside of the virtual world? It sounds like some easy thing, but it's not. But there are ways games can help in this way. I'm not sure who here learned about and to what extent Alfred Adler is covered in Introductory Psych, but he had this idea called the as-if therapy method. Basically, you should act as if you are the person you want to be a little bit every day. Put on the persona like a costume, and practice it, practice it, practice it, and it gets more and more to the surface, and soon enough you become more like that person you want to be until you suddenly are that person you want to be. Well, at least closer. 
And this is exactly what people do in role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, or even more in games like the new Avatar role-playing game, where the emphasis is on the narrative rather than fighting, and anything is possible. Like the story we are structuring today's class on, the whole point of many of these RPGs is the journey itself. Sure, our heroes might be going from point A to point B, but the whole fun of it is in the mischief or sudden accidents that happen along the way. But something that RPGs allow us to do is this as-if experience. It lets us do something called social play. We talked a bit about how our personality can attract us to certain types of games. And yes, even though some people may not abide by those rules, a majority of us are drawn to games that match our personalities. Those of us that like exploring play sandbox games. Those of us that enjoy organization really like roll and rights, etc. Well, as much as we want to think that on our RPG adventure where we can be anyone we want to be, we would pick someone completely different than us. But most of the time, this just isn't true. Most of the time, we actually design a character that is quite like us. But the interesting thing is, we often design them to be just a bit better at something we wish we were better at. And this is great. This can be practice. If you design someone who is more confident, sure of themselves, almost bragging to the point of being a jerk, it can actually get people to act more like it in their everyday lives. Why? Because in the game, it makes narrative sense. You're allowed to be that person with in-game consequences, but no consequences in the real world. It gives you a chance to act in a way you never would in the real world. But more importantly, it gives you a chance to act how you would want to act in the real world. Do you wish you were more selfish? Be that in the game. Do you wish that you could be more confident? Be that in the game. Act it out. Practice that mindset. This is actually used a lot in organizations that help kids. The idea is to stop at points in the story and ask why their characters may feel certain ways. For example, a character may run into a moral quandary where they need to choose between hurting themselves for the good of the team versus saving themselves so they can fight another day. It's difficult, but their character has to make a choice. Then they can take these lessons and apply it to the real world. Why would your parents make this decision for you? How can you better balance your time or try to make sense of the world around you? And these choices can help people in the real world, especially those with social anxiety. Remember when we talked about the act of devaluation? Well, this social play helps practice a counter to that. For example, one common element of social anxiety is the aversion to standing up for oneself because you devalue yourself. It's kind of this thing of how dare I inconvenience them by telling them they're wrong. My happiness is less important than their feelings of being right. In that pooper noodle interview I talked about earlier, she told a story of how her nail person made her bleed by filing her nail too much, but she didn't want them to feel bad about doing a bad job, so she just bit through the pain. It sounds a bit ridiculous to an outsider, but this is really what social anxiety can feel like for so many people. What social practice can do is allow those with social anxiety to practice conflict, to practice standing up for oneself through their character. Because it isn't them saying it, it's their character. Of course the warrior would prefer not to run away, but maybe their being dumb will get everyone killed. So the person with social anxiety, who you'll say is the level-headed member of the team, needs to convince them that they're wrong. They need to stand up to the warrior. Because inherently, this conflict between the characters is what makes the game fun in the first place. It's the discussions, the conversations, the character building that really bring these worlds to life. The person with social anxiety isn't ruining the experience for anyone. They're enhancing it. And here's the thing. They do that in real life too. 
By giving their opinions, by learning that they're a valuable member of society, they not only enhance their virtual world, they can use those skills to enhance their real one too. So why then, if these games can do good, are they considered dangerous by some scientists? Why do so many studies seem to find a link between gaming and depression, or gaming and anxiety, or anxiety and gaming disorder? It's all about the input and the reason for playing games. Are you using games to self-medicate and escape, or are you looking for purposeful, meaningful play? Self-medicating with games can be a dangerous path to go down. If you play games with this escapist, let's call it, mindset, that is, to ignore your problems, to block unpleasant emotions, or to avoid confronting stressful situations, you're more likely to suffer some of the negative effects that many studies have found associated with playing games, like anxiety, depression, or social isolation. This makes perfect sense. The more depressed you feel, the more you play games, and the less time and effort you put into action that could help solve your real-life problems. Your problems therefore get worse. Your anxiety makes you feel like a worse person, so you spend more time gaming to escape them. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. Researchers have found that the use of games to escape daily life is the number one factor that predicts excessive or pathological gameplay. 41% of frequent game players actually say they play video games to escape daily life. This is similar to other addictions. Many people drink alcohol to try to escape their problems. The rate of people diagnosed with anxiety who say use alcohol to escape is about 20%. Many say things like it gives them temporary solace of negative thoughts. It distracts them. But like video games, by using it this way, it can become the primary coping mechanism. Instead of dealing with the problem head on, it gets pushed back. But playing games to change our mood doesn't have to be problematic. The key is to play your favorite games with a purpose, with a positive goal, such as developing your creativity, learning to solve new problems, strengthening relationships with your friends and family, getting better at bouncing back from failure, or improving your performance in high-pressure situations. Researchers have found that this kind of purposeful gameplay builds self-confidence and real-world problem-solving skills. More importantly, it has the opposite impact of escapism. Playing to get better at something helps you become less depressed, better connected, and more resilient in real life. That's because every time you play, you think about the mental, emotional, and social resources you're building up. You don't see gameplay as artificially divorced from real life. Instead, you see play as an important way to help you practice real and meaningful skills. Like I said before, you're social practicing. And catastrophizing? Well, guess what? We all fail. It's something I've had to come to terms with and practice so hard. We fail, but it's not the end of the world. Think about it. In games, the player is responsible for the failure of the journey. Failure to save the princess. Failure to hop across a busy street. Failure to save the world from a pandemic. And the sense of ownership and complicity involved in being the cause of tragedy or suffering is a fundamental difference between games and other forms of storytelling. In games, we actively live rather than passively watch the hero's journey. Hardship, failure, pain, laughter, joy, all of it, until maybe sometimes we eventually triumph. And that leads us to our final act, return. In most films and books, the return is when the hero has finished their main quest and returns home. They find that they have changed and no longer fit into the world the way they once did. But in video games or board games, there often isn't this inherent sense of closure. It often leaves you wanting more. If I only had another round, or maybe it's a cliffhanger. Maybe the ending was so jarring that it left you gasping for air. Maybe you want to go back and explore the game more, pull different levers, make different decisions. 
When we think about Act 3 for books and films, this is where the hero has their time to reflect on growth. For those playing games, this is the time for the player to reflect. You get to think of all you did to arrive at the final moment, the choices you made, the journey you experienced. Further, games give us the chance to go back on that journey again and to see how different choices can lead to different endings. Self-reflection and self-fulfillment are both integrally tied to happiness and long-term life satisfaction. The player may also have developed a greater sense of self-compassion as players' abilities and inabilities dynamically grew and adjusted to overcome in-game challenges through their journey. The development of self-compassion has been linked to positive psychological functioning and measures of happiness. And maybe it's because players should have a greater sense of self-compassion about themselves, not just their character. They can relate the character's misadventures, mistakes, and growth to their own. It's also a time where we can learn about ourselves, what does or doesn't work. It allows us to meditate on what we've experienced. Meditations can turn off the adrenaline response because the half-life of it is only one to five minutes. It can slow down the exhalation process, which can, in turn, slow down the mental processes. Something important to realize is that there are many ways to meditate. For some people, mindfulness is great, but for some people, mindfulness is the opposite of what they need. But it can help. It, like our journey, gives us the opportunity to look back. Figure out how we became who we are, accept it, and try to better ourselves. We will overcome adversities, we will meet challenges, we will fail, but we will also get better as others are better with us there. Others trust us, others believe in us, and we don't have to do it alone. So log into an MMORPG. There are millions of people ready to trust you and work with you to complete missions. Go to a board game meetup where people will all agree to play by the same rules for the next couple of hours. Seek out professional help because you don't have to do this alone. But most importantly, love yourself. Because you are valuable just the way you are. Because you are all heroes. Thank you so much for listening into the Board Game Dojo podcast today. You can find us on YouTube at the Board Game Dojo. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. Any follows, subscription reviews are deeply appreciated, and we just appreciate you listening to our podcast today. Until next time, Oshimai!